Engaging Leader Episode 70, Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation, featuring Larry Downs. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Our guest today is Larry Downs. He is the author of the brand new book, Big Bang Disruption Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation. Larry is the research fellow for the Accenture Institute for High Performance, and his new book, co-authored with Paul Nunes from the Accenture Institute for High Performance, looks at what has changed in innovation and technology and how that's affecting businesses of all kinds, not just from the tech world. Larry Downs, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Larry, what's the evidence that innovation really has changed? Well, I mean, the easiest way to think about it is the evidence is all around us. We, as consumers, know that when it comes to uh, consumer electronics and gaming and pretty much anything that has uh, any kind of computing power in it, which, of course, these days is pretty much everything, we know that uh, the things we get come along uh, faster all the time. Often we're getting better and cheaper new goods every uh, generation of, of product. Uh, it's a very exciting time, of course, for consumers because there's so much to, uh, to choose from, and it's really changing our lives in so many positive ways. Uh, that's, you know, of course, what really drove us to, to start the research project in the first place. What's so different that you, to established firms that you're calling this Big Bang Disruption? Well, we noticed that um, the way in which new products and services were kind of going through their life cycle uh, didn't look like it, it used to look in the olden days. There's a, there's a kind of a classic model to, of a bell curve for technology adoption. It comes from work that was done decades ago by a sociologist named uh, Everett Rogers. And what he said was that the new things have to enter markets very slowly, and then uh, over time they kind of reach more mainstream users and then finally, you know, the sort of the last people uh, into the, the soup uh, get going. And we thought, well, you know, after so many generations of, of big technological innovation, particularly in information technology, but others as well, that model just didn't work anymore. And when we started looking at uh, product introductions in a, in a wide range of industries, not just the, the, the electronics industries, we saw that, in fact, uh, uh, oftentimes when a device or a service uh, really took off, it took off all at once and very quickly, and it attached you know, to every market segment, every kind of buyer uh, was getting it uh, together. And that's partly because, of course, you know, thanks to social media and the uh, mobile devices and broadband networks and the way that consumers are now connected to each other, when something is good, uh, you know, let's say you know, a new HD television or a new video game or a new app for your phone, uh, when people like it, they can very quickly tell each other about that. And so in some ways, they're doing the marketing for you, and everything just kind of happens all at once or it doesn't happen at all. One of the examples you've talked about that really made it clear to me is what happened in the market of GPS devices. Can you tell that story for us? 
Sure. I mean, uh, this is part of the bigger story about, about smartphones. And if you think about the, the smartphone, I mean, that's a device that really is replacing lots of devices and lots of other services. I just, uh, my old television remote finally gave out the other day. And when I went shopping for a new one, I found, you know, they're not really selling standalone TV remotes anymore. They're really saying, you know, here's a box that, uh, that will just sync it up with your, your smartphone. And that now becomes your uh, TV remote. Uh, this has, of course, happened, as you mentioned, in, in GPS. So we had these devices, you know, standalone little uh, GPS systems, and they, of course, were very disruptive to the old uh, paper maps. So they, in fact, they put Rand McNally and, and the, the uh, auto clubs out of business for doing that kind of stuff. And they would go for maybe, you know, 100, somewhere between 100 and $300 and uh, use the, the satellite data to give you turn-by-turn directions and maps and so on in your car or even when you were walking around. And then all of a sudden, uh, Google uh, in uh, 2011 said, well, you know, we have all this data already. Everybody has a smartphone. They're already connected to a network, so they have the device. They have access. And they just kind of cobbled together a, a, a beta product. In fact, it's still a beta product two years later. They called Google Navigation. And they pumped it out through the network onto smartphones, so within – you know, a matter of, of a month, there were m- literally tens of millions of people had Google Navigation, and it did everything that the GPS devices did, except it did it better. It was free, so certainly cheaper, uh, and Google was constantly updating it, uh, which it was easy to do because most of the software is in the, in the cloud, so there's not really much uh, you have to do on the individual devices. So suddenly, in a very short period of time, the GPS manufacturers had a competitor that was better and cheaper and more customized than the products they were selling for far more money. And, uh, you know, the results were very dramatic. Companies like TomTom and Garmin and Magellan, within a matter of months, uh, every measure you want to look at, their market share, their stock price, their sales, all just plummeted. And, you know, now to the extent that they're still in business, it's in kind of specialty markets. They really don't have the the volume that they used to have. They really don't have the leverage they had, and it's not really clear if they're going to survive. Well, that's a great example of what we call a big bang disruption. You know, it it just showed up one day, and there really wasn't any time once it did for a strategic response by the incumbents. So if you are the incumbent, what do you do in that kind of situation? Well, I think the first thing you do is you don't wait uh, for that, and I think this is probably where uh, our, our, uh, our research has kind of taken us in the most controversial direction. There's a long-standing um, sort of theory of innovation. It comes from the work of people like uh, Clayton Christensen and others that says, well, when a disruptive technology, let's say you know, a, a smartphone navigation app, when that arrives... It's not going to, originally it's going to show up in the market as kind of a, a cheaper but inferior product. And when you see it, the incumbents were told, you know, that's not a time to panic. You've got plenty of time to respond. You know, watch as it kind of, you know, develops its market and, and perfects the technology. And then ultimately figure out how you're going to incorporate it to use to replace whatever your core technology is. Well, the problem, of course, is that that's no longer uh, a useful model. In fact, we say you know, that that was the innovator's dilemma. Big Bang disruption is kind of the innovator's disaster. 
And what you should actually be doing is not waiting for a commercial product to show up, but to look much earlier in the life cycle of the technology. Start looking at, at what we see as these kind of random almost experiments that people, when, a, when they're playing with a new technology, trying to see if it's ready or what it can do or what kind of business model might support it. A uh, great example of that was in the in the ebook. So we all know, you know, Kindle now it seems like well, this is an obvious way to uh, to do ebooks. But there was probably ten years before that of, you know, generally speaking, failed experiments of other companies, other technologies trying to kind of crack the code of what an ebook reader would look like and what it would cost and how it would be, uh, you know, configured and how it would be networked. And if you were in the book business, the time to be paying attention and, and preparing a response was when those experiments were going on and not, you know, the day after the Kindle came out. And a lot of publishers did, didn't do that. They said, oh, well, look, these e-books are terrible and they don't work and no one's <laughs> buying them, so why do we need to worry about them? And then the, then the Kindle showed up and they, well, now it's too late to worry about them. It seems like... That's not just a lucky accident for Amazon. It's sort of in their DNA that they're constantly looking at what users are doing and data on what merchants are doing. So they'll they'll even notice when something when one of their Amazon marketplace merchants is has a product that's starting to take off and then Amazon actually comes in and starts to compete with them. Is that is is there something in there that's sort of part of the model where you're almost crowdsourcing to keep to get data on what might the next innovation be? Right. So that's that's a great that's a great observation, and it's it's a big part of what we looked at. Is uh, what we saw was you know there's what we call we call it near perfect market information. It's available out there, and it's really you know not hard for companies to get it, but most of them don't look for it or don't look at it. But if you're an incumbent now, instead of kind of doing your own market research and your own tests and your own focus groups, you should be paying attention to the social media where consumers are talking about your products or about the, you know, the technologies you use or about this, you know, the industry that you're in. They're talking about it constantly, and they're talking about it more or less publicly. So you can be watching that conversation and paying attention the way companies like Amazon and Google and Apple and others do to say, all right, what are, what are, what, what's, what's, what's annoying about our current products? What are people talking about that they don't like? What are they talking about that they do like? What are the things that they wish they could see? You know, you don't have to go to the same kind of effort that you used to to get answers to those questions. You can just watch the social media uh, and, and track it, and you will get, you know, tremendous insight. A lot of it may be painful, and that's why a lot of companies resist uh, listening to the message. But if you want to know what's going on in the market, what's going on in technology, what are people doing, that information is now out there. It's uh, very well organized. Uh, lots of companies don't pay attention to it, but if they did, they would, they would get that early view of, of just you know, what kind of disruptors might be coming around the bend. When we talk to you know, large companies today, one of our good litmus tests is to say, well, we start talking about uh, things like Kickstarter and other kinds of crowdsourcing and crowdfunding platforms where people can literally do these experiments and get people to back them. And if we find executives who don't even know what Kickstarter is, we know that they've got a problem. Is there really any hope for a company that has gotten very large and rather bureaucratic? I mean, I think of Google when they were working on Google Video, 
which they were already working on before YouTube had even been dreamed up, if I'm not mistaken. And then YouTube came along and just kicked the pants off of Google. And because Google basically had too many layers of lawyers and executives telling them what they, they couldn't do. And, and so YouTube just came along as the disruptor and Google's only choice really was to buy them out at that point. Well, that's true. I mean, and it, of course, part of the part of the, the the new strategy for success is not necessarily to invent everything yourself. Again, it's a kind of uh, old model of innovation that says, uh, you know, only we have the expertise, only we have the patents, only we have the uh, skills to come up with the next generation of of product or service for our industry. Well, of course, with all these experiments going on and people who don't have the constraints you do, legal or otherwise, uh, you actually might find somebody else kind of cracks that code long before you do. Uh, they may not do it in a way that's uh, scalable or they may not do it in a way that's entirely legal. But uh, if you're watching that and you see it take off, and then the really question becomes, well, do I imitate that or do I just acquire it? And if I acquire it, do I, you know, uh, sort of as one of my core skills, the ability to acquire it quickly before it goes from being a $100 million venture to a billion-dollar venture. It obviously gets to be a much higher price tag. And you, you've seen some of these um, billion-dollar acquisitions for what look to be still very early-stage, even experimental products uh, in the Internet space. Uh, billion dollars might actually you know, now constitute being in early uh, and, and if, you know, in some cases, if they had waited, it would have been, you know, like for example, uh, you know, lots of companies thought about acquiring Twitter when it was a young company. Uh, and uh, people thought, well, they were turning down offers uh, rumored for, you know, a billion here, a couple of billion there. But, of course, when the company went public, it's now worth uh, $25 billion. So it turns out a billion dollars would have been a bargain uh, <laughs> if they had bought it early enough. So in your book, you've got the one, the basic idea of don't wait, but to constantly be be looking at it strategically. And then do you provide some structure, uh, some suggestions as far as structure for how a large company can take on the, that kind of disruptive innovation? Yeah, we do. Um, what we did was we said, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier, this idea that the bell curve model of adoption is dead – we said, you know, our research kind of suggested there was a new life cycle. It's much shorter and it's much more uh, dramatic, both on the way up and on the way down. So we, we call that new life cycle the shark fin because that's literally the shape that it takes in many of the uh, examples that we looked at. And we said, you know, that shark fin, you can sort of divide it into four stages of, of uh, technology, you know, birth and death. And we provide, you know, kind of it's, it's a well-honored tradition here to provide rules. So we came up with uh, three rules for each of those four stages and said, you know, if you're in the early experimental stage, these are the kinds of things you need to do. If you're in the, the uptake stage, what we call the big bang stage, these are the things you need to do and so on. Uh, and, of course, you know, we, we gave a lot of examples uh, in each of those rules of companies, both, uh, you know, startup companies as well as incumbent companies that got it right and some that got it wrong to, to help underscore the importance of those rules. I wonder, you just recently blogged about a, an example that, that just occurred in November with Blockbuster becoming a, a casualty. So, obviously, they got something wrong even though it seemed like at first when they saw some disruption from Netflix, it seemed like they responded, but uh, they were chasing, they were, they were really only chasing a temporary solution. 
Yes, in fact, they were, you know, they were chasing, they were chasing. I think that's, of course, that's the right word to, to use in the first place is they were never proactive. They were always kind of responding. They didn't like the idea of Netflix. They didn't want to have to, you know, introduce this uh, mail order service. Um, they liked their stores. They relied on the stores. And they wanted to somehow find a way to save the stores. And so a lot of what they did in trying to respond to uh, competitive threats like Netflix and and Redbox and some of the other uh, kind of innovative technology things was really to say, well, we're going to do the minimum we we have to, but really it's still all about the stores. And, uh, you know, that's that's our bread and butter, uh, and we're going to save it even if it can't be saved. And I think that ultimately is what did them in was they just were not kind of culturally able to accept the fact that the, 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 their assets, their, their, their core assets, had become liabilities. And, uh, and they, couldn't, you know, they couldn't accept that. They couldn't get rid of them fast enough. They couldn't, of course, switch to a, to a, a much more uh, you know, liberating, for, in some cases, because there were far fewer physical assets to worry about in the Netflix model. But they just couldn't bring themselves to do it uh, fast enough or, in some cases, at all. And so then when Netflix introduced the online streaming innovation, that basically put the nail in the coffin for Blockbuster. Yeah, initially, maybe not so much because it, it wasn't all that good. Uh, they didn't have a huge catalog. Uh, of course, broadband um, has, has, you know, we, we, we just take for granted that broadband speeds and reliability continue to get uh, better all, all the time. So in the initial days, uh, you know, the streaming wasn't great, and it wasn't a whole lot to choose from. But very quickly, uh, again, more quickly than there was time to respond to, if that's what you were waiting for, uh, very quickly, you know, the streaming became uh, rock solid in terms of both the technology and the offerings. And, yeah, by then, you know, Netflix had really established the brand. They'd established a, a strong loyalty among their customers, uh, they had the pricing. Eventually, they got that right. Took them a little while to figure that out, and uh, that all you know is we're talking here about a matter of months, not years. And so, as you say, at that point it was just there, there was really nothing Blockbuster could do to, uh, to to save its assets. It is really amazing when you think of. I think it was maybe 2011 when Netflix had a big stumble. You mentioned the issues they had with pricing, but they also just ticked off a huge percentage of their customer base and lost a lot of market share. It would have been a great opportunity for a competitor or incumbent like Blockbuster to really take advantage of their, of their misstep. Yeah, you'd have to be, you know, it didn't last long, so you, you needed to have moved fast when that happened, and Blockbuster was just not a company that was uh, capable of moving fast. Now, I must say, I don't want to make it sound like uh, we only dump on incumbents because, in fact, we have a lot of great stories uh, from our research about big companies, some very large companies that have done uh, really tremendously innovative things that seemed, uh, you know, to follow the model but would have, you, you might have imagined would be impossible for them to do. We, uh, we tell the story of uh, Philips Lighting. This is one of the, in fact, the largest uh, manufacturer of incandescent light bulbs in the world and indeed uh, one of the companies that invented the idea of incandescent light bulbs over 100 years ago. And they started looking at, you know, some of the trends in, in uh, LEDs and how fast they were improving as a technology, obviously problems of sustainability and environmental concerns. And, uh, you know, long before it was uh, necessary and long before anybody else did it, Phillips came out and said, you know what, 
we are going to end this business. This is our most profitable business. It's a business we've been in for 100 years. No one is forcing us to go out of business yet. There is no real competition yet from, from LEDs and, and compact fluorescents. But we are announcing right now that we are getting out of the incandescent business, and we are going to, in fact, start working with NGOs and with governments to set a timetable to force everybody to get out of incandescence. Uh, meanwhile, we're going to retool ourselves to, uh, to be the premier provider of the next generation of lighting and all the things that uh, is possible with an LED, programmability, color, and so on, that you can't do with an incandescent. So they were unbelievably, I think, uh, given their size and given the momentum, they were very proactive about recognizing a disruptive technology was imminent, uh, there was no stopping it. It was only a matter of time, and to get in there before anybody else, competitors, startups, you know, you name it, to get in there and say, this is the date. This is the date we're going to switch, and uh, we are confident that the technology will be ready, and that it'll be better, and it'll be cheaper, and it'll be more customizable. What is it about Philips that made them more likely to, to take the right approach? Is there something in their DNA? Well, yes, I think that I think there is. I mean, they are, of course, you know, it's a very large company, and the lighting is just one of many, many divisions of the company. But the thing that I think binds them together and has from their beginnings a hundred years ago is that uh, you know they are constantly in the business of coming up with innovative new consumer products, and that's you know, in some ways, the consumer products business. Uh, consumer electronics and gaming, these are some of the most competitive industries that exist. So if you, if you can survive in those industries for 100 years, you have probably learned a few things about you know, products that have a shorter life cycle than you thought they would, uh, consumers being kind of fickle about what they like and what they don't like, and you've just learned that uh, every now and then you know, something just doesn't happen the way you, you hope or predict or plan it will, and you're just going to have to roll with that and respond quickly. Uh, there's no, you know, this sort of in Silicon Valley where I am, we talk about this kind of culture of, of it's okay to fail. In fact, you know, in some ways you, you, you earn your, your wings by failing a few times. Uh, that's not, of course, the mindset of, of many incumbent industries and certainly not, uh, you know, companies outside of Silicon Valley. If you're a manager and, you know, some project you spearheaded fails, that's it. You're out. You know, you're out of the company. You're, you may be out of a career. And so there's a kind of a culture of being very conservative, uh, being very cautious about change. Uh, that really doesn't work in the consumer products industry, and that's why companies like Philips, at least as, as you say, in their DNA, they've got it in them to say, you know, sometimes we really have to gamble. Sometimes we have to take a, a big bet. Sometimes we have to admit a very unpleasant truth about the, the long-term viability of a core product. But, you know, we've done it before. We'll do it again. Larry, we've talked about tech companies. And we've talked about product companies. Does this uh, idea of Big Bang disruption also affect service companies? It does. In fact, in some ways, it affects them more because, of course, they're on the front lines all the time of, of dealing with consumers, in some cases with uh, millions of consumers. And so any technology that changes the nature of the interface between a service company and its customers uh, can be very disruptive, and it can introduce the possibility of new competitors. Uh, one of the companies that we uh, we looked at very closely in our study uh, was Citibank. So this, we're talking here about uh, commercial banking, financial services. 
and uh, and Citibank, even in the sort of worst moments of the of the financial meltdown, was still being very innovative about how it looked for new technologies to interact with consumers in a more efficient and also a, a more high quality way. And I think one of the things that uh, that they did that uh, that uh, is admirable and, and has clearly worked for them is they essentially opened a uh, an office in Silicon Valley. Uh, and uh, sent some people out to do what uh, is known as corporate venture capital, where, in fact, their chief innovation officer uh, moved here from uh, from New York and started working very closely with the kind of traditional venture capital firms that you're all familiar with uh, to co-invest alongside of them in new technology and startups and things that uh, essentially could potentially change the nature of their banking technology and of their, their interface technology so that they could get in on those uh, experiments uh, before anybody else did and have the opportunity when something looked promising to very quickly move it in to, uh, to Citibank's you know, basic uh, activities and basic operations. Uh, they tell a great story about uh, kind of you know, hearing from one of their VC partners about a company that was doing some very interesting things with security that allowed them to see uh, some uh, was uh, sort of moving around their website to very quickly detect whether or not that was a real person as opposed to some kind of a, you know, a, a bot that was looking for security uh, vulnerabilities uh, in a, kind of an automated way and to very quickly recognize that kind of pattern and shut it off. Uh, this was a technology that you know the company was was brand new and they were just kind of working with their algorithms, but Citibank uh, made an investment in that company, uh, brought the product in house, started using it, deployed it within a matter of months, kind of then became the first and best customer. So it was you know very mutually beneficial for them in the startup, and ultimately the, the startup was uh, acquired for, for by a, a larger tech company for a very nice price. Uh, so Citibank got not only early access to technology, they also got a nice return on their investment as well. I think you know that's that's what I think a lot of incumbent companies are going to have to do. Again, they have to get out of this idea of thinking everything has to be invented here. It's got to all be internal R and D. In fact, some of the best ideas are out there uh, in the in sort of the the ether of the cloud and 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 uh, all kinds of experimentation. Uh, it's easy to find out about it if you're looking in the right place, but of course a lot of companies just aren't looking. So you need to have some mechanisms for getting the new ideas and identifying these disruptors, whether that's from your customers or competitors or other users, and also I guess just getting away from people who are just like you and, and getting around people who are thinking differently. That's right. Yeah, in the book, we call them truth tellers. That's a term that comes from the world of soap operas. In every uh, sort of there's a tr- convention in soap operas that there's always one character, or a couple of characters, whose job it is to move the plot along at key points. And what they'll do is they'll you know kind of bring characters together and they'll say you know oh but truly you know that's not your baby or that is your baby or something and and uh, and, and really uh, sort of you know break open a whole uh, bunch of uh, confusion. Uh, that's a key. I think that's the fact that our very first rule uh, is that companies have to find those truth tellers for their industry. And as you say, they could be customers, they could be competitors, they could be you know people in technology or outside the industry. Uh, you've got to find those people and you've got to learn how to listen to them because, of course, often what they're telling you just on the, on the, on the soap opera, they're telling you something you really don't want to hear. 
Well, the book is Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastation. We've been talking to Larry Downs, and of course, we've only scratched the surface because even once you identify the truth, there's still processes uh, that you need to follow to kind of make sure you're not placing a bad bet. So there's a lot more to get into it. But Larry, how can people find out more about you and your work? Well, the, um, we, of course, are you know, we're great followers of our own advice, so we're uh, all over the place. You can follow us. We have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter feed, and uh, we have a column that we do on Forbes.com uh, called Big Bang Disruption. Uh, the way to get all of that, I think, in one place is uh, our website, which is at uh, BigBangDisruption.com. Uh, that's uh, kind of all of our research and, and the book and uh, everything else that you need. And we're constantly uh, adding stuff to that, make it, try to make it better and cheaper like, uh, like some of our disruptors. Larry Downs is Research Fellow for the Accenture Institute for High Performance. Larry, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Anytime. Thank you for the invitation. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. Again, the book is Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation. And we'll provide the information and links that Larry mentioned on our show notes for this episode. You can find those show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash seven zero as in episode 70. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.